Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guide. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Due to the global pandemic that's going on, I'm currently at my parents' house for the foreseeable future, and that means I don't have my usual recording setup, aka my podcast closet and my microphone which means the sound quality of this podcast episode and the next few episodes may sound a little bit different. I honestly don't know when I'll be back in Chicago with my microphone and my setup, so I do apologize in advance for any funkiness in future episodes. For this episode and the next few episodes, I decided I'm going to talk about women in history whose names begin with C, specifically the name Charlotte, because I like that name, and there have been quite a few interesting women whose names were Charlotte. I'm going to start with Princess Charlotte of Wales, whose death led to the birth of Queen Victoria, which obviously had quite an impact on not only British history, but world history overall because Queen Victoria is one of those women who just completely changed the world. Princess Charlotte's study guide has one of the worst cases of parental drama on the podcast to date, a dashing escape, awful medical practices, which feels quite relevant for the present time, and the usual cousin loving. Let's begin. Princess Charlotte of Wales was born January 7th, 1796, in Carlton House, London. Her birth name was Charlotte Augusta. She was named after both of her grandmothers and was christened by the Archbishop of Canterbury when she was about a month old, but everyone is just going to call her Charlotte, and I will follow that trend. Charlotte's parents were Prince George IV of England, who was then the Prince of Wales, and his wife, Caroline of Brunswick. George and Caroline have an extremely rough relationship. First of all, they are literal cousins. Caroline's mother is George's aunt, Augusta, and on top of the incest that's inherent in the relationship, George is a famous playboy who had only agreed to marry Caroline in order to have Parliament pay off his various debts. George is aggressively not into his wife. He famously says, pray get me a glass of brandy when he sees Caroline of Brunswick for the first time. And on top of it all, George may or may not have already been married to one of his many mistresses, Maria Fitzhebert, at the time, which is fun and not at all awkward and potentially illegal because bigamy is frowned upon in most of Western society. As soon as Charlotte is born, the relationship between George and Caroline completely falls apart. Not that there is much of a relationship to begin with. George leaves Caroline, and three days after Charlotte is born, George writes a will that says all of his things, except for a single shilling, will go to his favorite mistress, Maria Fitzherbert, instead of Caroline and his daughter. Caroline and George officially get separated three months after Charlotte is born. So, things from the parental front 
aren't exactly looking great for our young heroine. But it's going to change, because George's father, who happens to be king of England, George III, absolutely adores his granddaughter. After all, Charlotte is his first legitimate grandchild, which means that she is now second in line for the throne. And because of this, she is not just going to be super popular with her grandfather, but also super popular with the larger English public. When Charlotte is 18 months old, she makes her first official public appearance to great acclaim. People are literally fighting in the streets to see her face and attempt to kiss her hand, which is all very exciting, but from a public health perspective, maybe isn't the greatest. Maybe, like, don't have a swarm of unwashed humans try to kiss an 18-month-year-old. They don't exactly have the strongest immune systems. As a toddler, there are a lot of debates over who should actually have custody of Charlotte. Caroline and George are both, are both fighting over who should control her education, be the one to actually raise her, and to be totally honest, neither George nor Caroline have the greatest of reputations. But because George is the man, he quickly gets the upper hand and has primary custody of his daughter. Once he has custody, he really starts limiting Caroline's access to Charlotte. Pretty soon, Caroline is only allowed to see Charlotte once a day and only if an approved nurse or governess is present. However, George is so unpopular among the royal household that the nurses and governesses and other servants are willing to turn a blind eye and basically let Caroline see her daughter whenever she wants. And then, quickly, George III, the King of England, steps in and says, I will take care of Charlotte's entire upbringing. However, there is a catch. He says that if he's going to be in charge of his granddaughter, Caroline of Brunswick is going to have some say in the whole raising of her daughter situation. And immediately, George IV freaks the fuck out and says, nope, nope, nope. He does not want his wife to have anything to do with her very own flesh and blood. By 1799, when Charlotte is about three years old, father and grandfather reach somewhat of an agreement and they decide that Carolina Brunswick is going to be completely banned from seeing her daughter. As a result, George is basically going to be raising Charlotte in isolation, by which I mean George is going to have very little to do with his daughter and Charlotte is mostly going to be raised by one of her governesses, Lady Elgin, until she's about nine years old. Charlotte is also going to spend a lot of time with George's older sister and is going to be decently close with her various other uncles and aunts. However, then in 1805, her main governess, Lady Elgin, leaves, which leads to a whole other round of debates over who is going to raise Charlotte. During these debates, Caroline of Brunswick is in the middle of yet another investigation on her conduct. This time, she's being accused of sleeping with a guy, but Caroline of Brunswick is 
cleared of any potential misconduct, so she's finally able to see her daughter a little bit more. Because Charlotte is raised in a fair amount of isolation, and because she is the granddaughter of the king, and no one's really going to tell her exactly what to do, Caroline basically grows up doing whatever she wants to do. She's going to be a bit of a tomboy. She has a reputation for letting her petticoats and underdrawers show, which was quite the scandal in early 1800s England. But despite having a reputation for being a tomboy, she's also known for being quite the skilled piano player. She really enjoys the music of Haydn and Mozart, and apparently loves Jane Austen novels, especially Sense and Sensibility. And as a fun little side note, her father, George, the Prince of Wales, also adored Jane Austen novels and kept bugging Jane Austen to dedicate one of her novels to him. And Jane Austen was not a fan of the Prince of Wales, but finally agreed to dedicate a novel to him because it was what is done, and dedicated Emma to the Prince of Wales, which is kind of a slap in the face because Emma is all about behaving not so well. Despite Charlotte's tomboyish tendencies, by the time she was in her early teens, she started to get a reputation for being really pretty. She's best known for her curly light hair and for having a super animated and lively personality. Yes, she's a little bit hard to control, but if she's able to settle down and talk, she's a great conversationalist. In 1810, Charlotte's life starts to change yet again. Her grandfather, George III, starts to suffer from a bout of serious mental illness. He had suffered from mental illness in the past, but had always recovered from it. This time, he doesn't recover. And it's not only hard on England, because, well, their king can't rule, it's hard on Charlotte personally, because the king was one of the few people she was especially close to. By February 1811, her father officially becomes prince regent and is put in charge of the English government because George III just can't govern anymore. Even though he is Charlotte's father, Charlotte isn't invited to the ceremony and apparently rides in the garden outside the building where said ceremony is happening so she can at least try to get a glimpse of her father being named Prince Regent. And let's just take a second to think about how sad that is. She's only 14 15. She's just trying to get a peek of her father being proclaimed the new head of the English government. When George IV is made Prince Regent, he really cracks down on interactions between Charlotte and Caroline, in some cases trying to physically isolate Charlotte as much as possible by sending her to live with her aunts or her grandmother which is very restrictive for Charlotte, who tends to like her freedom. One of the ways that Charlotte rebels is by entering into romantic relationships with her cousins. First, she falls in love with George Fitz, 
George Fitzclarence, the illegitimate son of one of her uncles, the Duke of Clarence, but then Fitzclarence goes and joins the army down in Brighton and is no longer available for Charlotte to enact various forms of rebellion on, so she then falls in love with another cousin, Charles Hesse, her uncle Frederick's illegitimate son. Hesse is a member of the Light Dragoons and, once again, has to leave to go do various army things, this time in Spain. Even though nowadays we definitely would frown upon, well, relationships with cousins, Charlotte's mother, Caroline, is totally fine with both of these relationships and even encourages Charlotte to be with her cousins. Actually, almost all of her family, except for her father, knows about the relationships and straight up refuses to tell George about them because the entire family think that George is being completely unreasonable. So that's Charlotte's life from about 1810 until 1813, separated from her mother, being bounced around between various aunts, and making out with her older male cousins. In 1813, the Napoleonic Wars start to wrap up. It's pretty clear that England is going to win, and Charlotte is 17, which is the perfect time for her to get married, according to her father, who by now is looking around for possible husbands to marry her off to. George decides that the best possible husband for Charlotte is William of Orange, the son of William VI of Orange. Even though William is from the Dutch royal family, he had grown up in England because of how Napoleon had conquered the Netherlands, he had went to Oxford, he is by now the model of a perfect English gentleman, and he has royal connections, so why not marry Charlotte to him? George introduces Charlotte to William in December 1813, and it doesn't go great. Charlotte is not into William, mostly because her mother doesn't like William, and Caroline continues to have quite a lot of sway over Charlotte because the two are still seeing each other because everyone in the family hates George and are still letting Caroline and Charlotte hang out, even though George is trying to limit their interactions as much as possible. Even without Caroline's whispering into Charlotte's ear, it seems pretty unlikely that Charlotte would have been that much into William of Orange because he had a really messed up hairline and almost certainly was bisexual. At the very least, he was blackmailed pretty heavily over rumors over rumors of his sexuality throughout his reign. Also, one of the big conditions of Charlotte marrying William of Orange was moving to the Netherlands full-time, which Charlotte was not into. She straight up tells William that if he wants to marry her, he would have to accept her mother into their households whenever she wanted, which William refuses to do. So, once again, the possibility of the relationship is at a stalemate. A few months into the possible relationship in June 1814, Napoleon abdicates, and a ton of foreign dignitaries come down into London to discuss what to do about Napoleon abdicating. And one of these foreign dignitaries is a young man named 
Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, who is there as part of the negotiations. Charlotte first sees Leopold of Saxe-Coburg at a ball on June 12th. The two don't really interact, but she notices him. She points out to a friend that he's super handsome. They chat a few days later, and then on June 16th, 1814, four days after she saw Leopold for the first time, Charlotte writes William of Orange a letter breaking off their engagement. The engagement is publicly over on June 23rd. When George finds out that Charlotte has ended her engagement, he is not thrilled. He decides he's going to send Charlotte to live with her grandmother in Windsor and completely isolate Charlotte from the terrible influence of her mother, Caroline of Brunswick. While he's waiting to send Charlotte to live with her grandmother, he refuses to let Charlotte leave her current home, the Warwick House. But when Charlotte finds out about this little plan, she runs away from home. She literally goes down the back stairs, sneaks out the back door, and runs out into the street. When she's out in public, she finds a random man in a hackney cab who, luckily for Charlotte and history, isn't a serial killer, thank goodness, who agrees to take her to her mother's house. When Charlotte is at Caroline's house, she meets with some Whig politicians who convince her to stay with her father instead of continuing to run away. The decision to go back to her father's house maybe wasn't the best choice because after that little running away stunt, George keeps Charlotte in strict isolation. She's not allowed to see any of her friends or write any letters and gets sent to her grandmother in Windsor without seeing Leopold again. She literally only gets to leave her home to briefly say a short goodbye to her mother when Caroline leaves England for Europe because George is convinced it's such a short goodbye that Caroline won't be able to influence Charlotte any further. Eventually, Charlotte is allowed to go to Weymouth, a seaside town, because Charlotte's health is suffering a little bit and the sea was thought to be good for young women's health. Charlotte will then rotate between Windsor and Weymouth between until 1815. For the next year, she will be trying to convince her father to one, let her out of strict isolation, and two, let her marry Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. Eventually, she wears her father down because by January 1816, George agrees to let Charlotte marry Prince Leopold. So, who is this Prince Leopold that Charlotte is so in love with? Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, who happens to be six years older than Charlotte, which is a pretty healthy age gap by the standards of this podcast, is the youngest son of the Duke of Saxe-Coburg. While he comes from a very well-connected noble European family, because he is the youngest son of said family, he has absolutely no chance of inheriting any land. Despite this, he is known for being extremely good-looking, he's tall, he has dark hair, etc, etc, and is a fairly good soldier. 
he had fought with the Russian army against Napoleon during the Napoleonic Wars and had used his connections in the Russian army to help win Saxe-Coburg more territory after the Battle of Waterloo. In January 1816, once George agreed to let Charlotte marry Prince Leopold, he returned to England. Despite that, he and Charlotte don't see a ton of each other, but they are engaged, which is very exciting for the young couple. The engagement is officially announced in March 1816. Charlotte marries Leopold on May 2nd, 1816 at the Carlton House in London. She is 20 years old and he is 26. Because of Charlotte's immense popularity in the country, there are huge crowds in London to watch her go to the wedding. Think Princess Diana, Princess Kate, Meghan Markle, but in 1816. After getting married, Charlotte and Leopold then spend their honeymoon in the Oatlands by Surrey. I honestly have never heard of that location, but I'm sure it was an absolutely lovely honeymoon. After the honeymoon, the two newlyweds move back to London for a bit to settle down, but they decide that life in London is a little too busy for them. During their brief time in London, Charlotte suffers a miscarriage, which was extremely traumatic for her, and to make matters even worse, it occurs while the two are watching an opera, which I can't even imagine how awful that would have been. To help Charlotte recover, the couple moves back to Surrey to live in a to live in the Claremont House, which had a reputation for being extremely beautiful and extremely peaceful. By all accounts, Charlotte and Leopold were super happy at the Claremont House. The two balanced each other out really nice in terms of personality. Charlotte, as we recall, had a reputation for being very lively, while Leopold was a bit more serious and reserved. In fact, Charlotte's nickname for Leopold was Doucement, which means gently in French, because he was always having to tell her to calm down and approach life a little bit more gently. Besides their contrasting personalities, they had very similar taste. They both loved art, music, and foreign languages. In February 1817, a little less than a year after the marriage, Charlotte became pregnant yet again, and her pregnancy was publicly announced in April 1817. The English public was thrilled by the idea of Charlotte having a kid. There was tons of media attention after the announcement because not only was Charlotte a because not only was Charlotte popular and the heir to the throne, if she had a healthy child, the succession would be even more secure. Economic experts said that the birth of a healthy baby, especially a healthy son, could raise the English stock market by as much as 6%. And I'm no economics expert, but I think that's a pretty huge jump. However, by August 1817, Charlotte was having a pretty difficult pregnancy. She was dealing with some pretty significant weight gain, like a lot more weight gain than usual, and lots of swelling. Her main doctor during the pregnancy, a very well-regarded midwife, Sir Richard Croft, was very worried about her symptoms, which were signs of either a large 
fetus or preeclampsia, which was a diagnosis that wasn't quite as well known in the early 1800s. However, Croft was considered to be the perfect man to help Charlotte through these symptoms because he had a reputation for being good at saving both mothers and fetuses in difficult pregnancies. To help Charlotte deal with these symptoms in the best way possible in the early 1800s, Croft put Charlotte on a very strict diet and a very strict exercise regime. He told Charlotte that she should only eat cold meat, cold fruit, and bread, and that she should go horseback riding as often as possible, but to avoid any other strenuous activity, including sex. He also regularly bloodlet from Charlotte in order to reduce her swelling, which in hindsight was a pretty bad idea because in addition to not letting Charlotte eat a whole lot, it probably weakened her. Charlotte was supposed to give birth on October 19th, but her due date passed and nothing happened. By the time she was supposed to give birth, from a combination of the restrictive diet and all the bloodletting, Charlotte was pretty weak. She ended up not going into labor until November 2nd, which meant that Charlotte was pretty overdue, which was super dangerous both in the 1800s and even by modern standards. Pretty early on in Charlotte's labor, Richard Croft realized that Charlotte's baby was breech, aka lying sideways, not head down. Breach births, even nowadays, are pretty tricky. Nowadays, we'd probably just do a C-section. Once again, I'm not a medical expert, but that's usually what they do on Grey's Anatomy, so that's what I'm guessing they would do. However, C-sections in the early 1800s were not great news for either baby nor mother, and Richard Croft does not want to accidentally kill a daughter of the Prince Regent of England, so he's going to tread pretty lightly. Also, Croft belongs to what's known as the Non-Intervention School of, of Obstetrics. While medical interventions for childbirth, like forceps, do exist, they're fairly crude, and Croft is going to try to avoid using them as much as possible, aka he's not going to use them at all in Charlotte's case. As a result, Charlotte's labor is going to last 50 hours. The first 26 hours of her labor is just contractions and dilation, which, oh my gosh, such a nightmare. However, Leopold is going to be next to Charlotte's side the entire time, which I think makes him a pretty excellent time pretty excellent husband for any time period. During these 26 hours of contractions and dilations, Croft tells Charlotte to exercise by walking, but doesn't let her eat anything and refuses to give her any painkillers to numb the pain. After these 26 hours of contractions and dilation, it takes Charlotte another 24 hours to push the baby out because she's so exhausted and because the baby is pretty large, about nine pounds. The baby ends up being stillborn. It probably had been dead for several hours before she was able to push it out because the head basically was too large for Charlotte's pelvis. 
the fact that the baby was stillborn did lead to debate if Charlotte, if Richard Croft should have used forceps. However, because forceps were fairly new and fairly crude, the forcep could have really damaged the baby by causing severe bruising and fractures and even hemorrhage around the skull and could have made it really difficult for Charlotte to have had another baby in the future due to internal complications. After the birth, Charlotte almost immediately hemorrhages because quite a bit of her placenta is still left inside her. However, Croft is able to get the placenta out and manages to save her from bleeding to death. So far, mostly so good. After she is no longer hemorrhaging from the placenta, Charlotte seems to be okay. The doctors let George IV know what happened. While he's sad that the baby was born dead, he is happy that his daughter's okay and goes back to sleep. Leopold, who also had been awake for 50 hours during the entire labor, is given an opiate to go to sleep. Charlotte, meanwhile, who is the one who was given birth, was given some alcohol, but no food and no, pain no painkillers, and also did not go to sleep. So let's think about that, of who is allowed to go to sleep and who isn't. A few later, a few hours later, Charlotte's condition takes a massive turn for the worst. She begins having trouble breathing, she feels weak, and has a rapid pulse. She starts vomiting and is unable to hold liquid down. She also begins to hear voices in her head. After a few hours, the doctors have no choice but to give her opiates because she begins uncontrollably spasming. It's extremely clear that she is in danger, but there's not a whole lot that the doctors can do because welcome to the 1800s. Charlotte dies about five hours after giving birth of hemorrhage and shock, most likely caused by a complication from preeclampsia that she almost certainly was suffering from. Her last words were stocky, stocky, which was a reference to one of the doctors, Charles Stockmore, who was going to get Leopold. Princess Charlotte of Wales died on November 6, 1817. She was only 21 years old when she died. Both she and her stillborn baby were buried together in St. George's Chapel. Charlotte's death made things extremely complicated for the English royal family. She was second in line to the throne and the only legitimate child of King George III, who, remember, can't rule, which is why her father was acting as Prince Regent. Once George III died, her father would officially become king, and suddenly her father has no legitimate heirs. This means that her father's brothers suddenly need to get married ASAP and start producing legitimate heirs. And that's exactly what happens. Her father's brother, William, the Duke of Clarence, marries Adelaide of Saxe-Meningen, and they have a daughter who dies in infancy. Then his next younger brother, Edward, the Duke of Kent, marries a widow, Victoire, who just so happens to be Leopold's older sister. The two have a daughter, who is now 
next in line for the throne, whose name is Alexandrina Victoria, a.k.a. Drina, a.k.a. the future Queen Victoria. In addition to being partially responsible for the birth of Queen Victoria, Charlotte's death also really changes childbirth in England. A lot of people blame Croft and his lack of intervention for Charlotte's death. In February 1818, partially over guilt for Charlotte's death, Croft commits suicide. Charlotte's death leads to the rise of rational intervention in childbirth with things like using ergot to speed up contractions and giving women in labor anesthesia, all of which does help make childbirth slightly less deadly for women in labor. Charlotte is extremely mourned at the time of her death. She is one of the few popular members of the royal family, and we really won't see someone in the English royal family to reach her level of popularity until Queen Victoria becomes a thing. After Charlotte's death, her husband Leopold is going to be in mourning for ages. He will eventually become King of Belgium in 1830 and will not remarry until 1831 when he marries Louise Marie, the daughter of King Louis Philippe of France. They will eventually have four children, including one named Carlotta, who just so happened to marry one Maximilian of Austria, who briefly became Emperor of Mexico, which was a story I covered previously on the study guide. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the very short life of Princess Charlotte of Wales. Princess Charlotte of Wales was born in January 1796. Her parents were cousins, Caroline of Brunswick, and Prince George of England, the Prince of Wales, son of George III. Charlotte's parents had a very tough relationship, aka they absolutely loathed each other and split up three months after Charlotte's birth. Growing up, there were a lot of debates over which parent would be in charge of Charlotte, but because her father was a man, he basically was the one who raised her slash had custody over her. So Charlotte's going to just grow up in a lot of isolation, seeing a lot of fighting before between her parents, just generally not a good time. When Charlotte's 17, the Napoleonic Wars, which have just been raging on since forever, start winding down, and Daddy Dearest starts looking for a possible husband for her. He decides on William of Orange, the son of the King of the Netherlands, and Charlotte isn't into that. One, William isn't that attractive, and two, it would mean leaving behind her beloved mother. She says no. She decides that instead she wants to marry Leopold of Saxe-Coburg, who she's met only four days before at a ball, and her father freaks out and tries to completely isolate Charlotte from everyone she knows. Charlotte attempts to run away. Literally, she runs into the street and jumps into a carriage before being sent back to her father's house and then sent to live with her grandmother for a year. However, Charlotte somehow manages to convince her father to let her marry Prince Leopold, and the two do get married in May 1816 when Charlotte is 20 years old. The two apparently have an amazingly happy 
marriage. They're really well suited for each other, have perfectly contrasting personalities that bounce off each other really nicely, have similar taste in art, music, and literature, and things are going great. In February 1817, Charlotte becomes pregnant, and the entire English public is thrilled to hear it. However, Charlotte does not have an easy pregnancy. Pretty early on, it's clear something isn't going right. She's gaining way too much weight, way too quickly. Her doctor, Richard Croft, puts her on a strict exercise and diet regime, but still, the pregnancy is going hard. Soon, her due date arrives and passes, and Charlotte doesn't go into labor. She goes into labor about two weeks later, and the labor lasts for over two days before Charlotte finally delivers a stillborn baby. Everyone is hugely upset, including a by now exhausted Charlotte, who wasn't given any painkillers or food for the entirety of the labor. Tragically, a few hours later, Charlotte begins having trouble breathing. She starts vomiting uncontrollably and spasming and dies of hemorrhage and shock, most likely caused by a complication from preeclampsia on November 6, 1817, at the age of 21. Charlotte's death means that the English royal family suddenly doesn't have an heir to the throne, which means that all of her father's brothers have to suddenly scramble to get married and have heirs, which eventually leads to the birth of Queen Victoria, as well as to some pretty massive reforms in the way the English handle childbirth. So that is Princess Charlotte of Wales. While her life wasn't that long, it does have some huge ramifications for English and world history, as well as some big changes in the way childbirth happened. So as a woman, I think I can thank her for that. Also, I thought it was appropriate to talk about her because medicine, hygiene, those are all things I think we're thinking about a lot right now. Most of my research for this episode came from Felicity's Felicity Day's article on Princess Charlotte, Susan Flancer's article on Princess Charlotte, and Robert Huish's memoirs on Princess Charlotte. As always, you can see a full bibliography and relevant images on the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or an idea for a future episode, please let me know at sadgirlstudyguides.com at gmail.com. If you want to financially support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. If you want to reach out to me on social media, please do. I'm getting really bored in sheltering in place in California. I'm on Twitter at, at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram at sadgirlstudyguides. The best way you can help the podcast grow is tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Later review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!